my motto is have a go, um, give a damn. <laughs> um, if you're passionate about it, just do it. Just just, just have a go. Um, there's, there's always ways to achieve things, I think, no matter what the situation. So don't let negativity drag you down in any situation because it's, yeah, it's, it's there to feed you in a bad way. So we don't want that. So just concentrate on the positives and move forward. It's up to all of us to have a go. <laughs> this podcast series, Queensland Women, Inspiring Stories from Environmental Champions, gives voice to the vital environment support and ecological sustainability work undertaken by inspiring women practitioners, advocates and thought leaders in this state. We hope that it offers our audience and particularly women listeners energising ideas and encouraging role models which can help motivate them as they develop their own contributions toward building a genuinely sustainable future in this place. To be clear, that would be a future based upon much improved levels of human and other species health and well-being, much improved levels of social fairness and an authentic, sustainable economic prosperity which leaves no one behind. The series was produced for Hope Incorporated Australia in Toowoomba, Queensland, on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka peoples of the surrounding region. Hope pays respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nation Australians in this country and celebrates the unique contributions their cultures make to this place. Those contributions include Indigenous spiritual respect and care for country, the sovereignty of which was never ceded. We acclaim Indigenous stewardship of the nature of Australia, undertaken over many, many thousands of years, and the model that stewardship provides us now in this place as we survey and attempt to repair some of the environmental damage created by the often misguided development approaches of only the last 200 years or so. Hello and welcome. My name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the podcast series. The evolution of the land care movement represents one of the most important developments in the history of efforts to restore degraded natural systems and physical environmental quality in Australia. The founding focus of land care, a community not-for-profit organisation, was the mobilisation and coordination of local groups of volunteers working to restore and enhance nature, wildlife and the healthy functioning of natural systems. My guest in this podcast episode, Beck Kirby, provides a great example of land care in action in 2023. She has been a professional land care coordinator for over 10 years, and in her work she oversees a range of environmental restoration and enhancement initiatives undertaken under the land care program around the small regional town of Milmerran in the Darling Downs region of southeast Queensland. In our discussion, Beck talks about her lifelong passion for land and wildlife, the challenges and opportunities that her landscape protection work provides, and her positive philosophy toward achieving environmental protection and enhancement through the influential skills she brings to engaging with people and place. So, a warm welcome, Beck. It's great to talk with you today. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you too. Let's start the conversation. Let's go back in time, ask you a bit about your personal history of environmental support interests. Question, first question, do you remember how your passion for the environment started? My passion started the day I was born. <laughs> um, I think it was something that has just was bred into me, I think. Um, always had a passion for the land, always had a passion for people. And obviously, without people, 
nothing changes on the land. So, yeah, so it's sort of just it was born and bred into me. Um, that's the quick answer. <laughs> and um, I've always had a passion for the land and wildlife. I was always going to chase a path of national parks and life got in the road and didn't go that way. So, but eventually found where I was meant to be, my little niche. And we'll come on to talk about that in more detail in a moment, but just uh, staying with that first yeah. response, you, along with I think every guest so far in the series, has mentioned some early connection to the natural world, to nature, to the land, however you want to describe it. And that sort of links in solidly, as I've said in previous episodes, with a lot of research, which is perhaps unsurprising, but it might be worth pointing to it that the earlier the contact of a child or a young person with nature, the more likely it, it is that they will develop. Yeah. Um, environmentally supportive attitudes and behaviour in later life. So this seems to be a common theme that's coming out, certainly of this, you know, half dozen guests that I've interviewed so far. Um, yeah, right. And I suppose yeah. it also points to, and I've made this comment before as well, so what's happening with our present generations of young kids who are spending less and less time, it would seem, with exceptions, but a lot of them are spending less and less time outdoors, out in nature for a variety mm. of reasons, whether that's screen time, digital, you know, distraction, whatever it is, this, this is a bit of a concern. Um, if if that risk, yeah, yeah, go on. Do you want to say something about that? I think it's a huge concern. Um, a lot, again, there's differing reasons why kids aren't out in nature. I think fear, people are scared of everything these days, you know. They're scared of my kid might get hurt or they might, you know, fall out of that tree or they might get bitten by a snake. There's that element of fear, I think, with a lot of parents. Um Time is another factor. Um, obviously, back 50, 60, 100 years ago, everyone's backyard was acres, acres and acres and acres of land. Plus, they walked to school, they rode to school, they rode horses. Now, everything's car, bus, you know, there's even that lack of just getting to places. Um, I think it's a huge thing. So, one of my biggest passions is getting in there early to those kids that haven't got that opportunity, I suppose, to be out in the scrub and to yeah and people don't appreciate what they don't know i think too so my big thing is teaching people what they don't know <laughs> so kids and kids are such sponges as we know so i think if we can instill that little you know if they like a butterfly like that can lead on to so so many other things Sorry, that truck car just went past him. <laughs> yeah, well, well, talking about distractions, there you go. Yeah, the modern world, you know, in, in, intruding <laughs> there. But but I think uh, you're going to yeah. talk about you are an environmental educator, amongst many other things that you do within that land care role. I'm sure you're going to tell us a bit more about that. Um, so that would be very interesting to hear, you know, getting that connection with young kids um, into your work as well, enthusing, enthusing them and uh, about the nat natural world. But look, staying with earlier times, let's talk about, you know, early formative experiences. You've already mentioned that, you know, early um, experience of being a child, a young person on the land. But in a mm -hmm. career profession as it develops or calling, you know, you know, whatever you'd like to describe it as, people often refer to other people who influenced them. So the next question is, is there anyone in particular you remember who inspired or mentored you in your work? Um, probably not so much as, as a young person, um, but I've definitely got plenty of Plenty of great mentors and experienced people, passionate people around me now, which is why I'm very fortunate to be in this role. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think a lot of them, they're not, um, what's the word? They're not mentors as such, but I, they, they do mentor me a lot. I like being out with those sorts of people because passion exudes passion, I think. And 
like Frank. We get to work with people like Frank <laughs> who, who um, yeah, we're all on the same page, I think. Um, but, yeah, as far as early, I remember I did I did do work experience when I was 15 as a park ranger at Bunya Mountains and I remember meeting a couple a couple there and I can't remember their names or where they're from or whatever else, but I still remember we had this huge connection as far as spiritually and lots of my airy fairy stuff. <laughs> I get called airy fairy stuff, but um, even as far down as their healing, like their crystal healing and their natural sort of healing. So I've always had that. That's stuck in my mind. I've actually got books from them about nature and natural therapies and all that from way back then. So it's sort of, I, I think about those are probably my earliest sort of mentors, I think. I, again, I don't know their names and I <laughs> can't remember their names or anything. I just remember our sort of conversations about the natural world sitting out there at the Bunny Mountains. So it was a pretty, that's probably my earliest thing. I've always been a nag. Mum's always told me that I've always been the, the water saver and the energy saver and I'm always, was always yelling at my siblings <laughs> to stop wasting water. And so I don't really know where it come from, but I think just inbuilt. <laughs> that's so. great. That's great. And, and, just uh, just picking up a point off off you, you know, there that idea of healing in nature. It's interesting how I mean that's always been there going back donkey's years, you know, decades. But it's interesting. There's a bit of a revival of, of that in the sense yep. of this whole air, area around what's so called nature connectedness is the term now. Um, forest bathing. Uh, mm -hmm. that's model that's come over from Japan, but has been elaborated by a whole series of other organizations in other countries. Now, this idea that being in nature is good for you, uh, for, for the likes of yourself and myself, that's not exactly news, but yeah. uh, for a lot of people, uh, that is still perhaps surprising, but you've yeah. even got now GPs in some countries writing so-called uh, green prescriptions for someone who's wow. got mental health issues. Instead of actually giving them yeah. a, a tablet um, prescription, they will say, well, go off and, and do some walking in this area or some, you know, parks yeah. or forest area. You know, this is a, a serious uh, approach because of that understanding yep. that being in nature, because we're part of nature, is actually yep. restorative therapeutic so that's interesting you mentioned that yeah and, and just for those, for those who might be interesting uh interested in the reference to frank there just to give him a name frank Andres, the president of householders options to protect the environment in fact interestingly the auspice organization that's supporting this podcast series frank has been around on the landscape as we might say for a very long time but as you as you imply is one of those enthusiasts bringing all of his energies and skills to uh, community capacity building around environmental restoration and, and, and uh, environmental education. So interesting to hear about him. So, Beck, as we move on um, through this interview, you know, you've already started to actually uh, talk about this. But, uh, you know, as you came into your more mature age, if that's the way to put it, your career, your mature career, um, to yeah. ask you about how you actually got involved, hands on the ground, you know, the nuts and bolts of how you got involved with the ideas of environmental conservation. You mentioned some of those early influences, but when you finally did get into doing some stuff yourself, uh, can you give us some detail around that? Yeah, so I was always, obviously, like I said, um, going down the national parks and wildlife track, um, then life got in the way. Husband, kids and study sort of went by the side. Um, always did volunteer days. I'd clean up Australia Day, anything like that. Um, as a young person and then I've just continued on. So the way I got into land care officially um, in the in the capacity that I'm in now was there was a a little land care group in Wilmeron that I used to go and volunteer for to the with the coordinator and 
she was moving on um, sometime down the track. So I went for the role. I was very scared to go for the role because I knew it was a lot of facilitation and talking in front of people, which scared the pants off me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I sort of nearly didn't go for the role, but I'm super, super glad I did. <laughs> and um, now you can't shut me up. <laughs> so that's how it started. And I've just, with Landcare, like, yeah, there was that little model that went back 40 years ago when it was developed. Um, but I think Landcare is what we can make it. We make it our own, and I certainly try and do that. I incorporate children, townspeople, farmers, everyone. Like, like to steal the Landcare Australia thing, Landcare is for everyone, the life um, slogan they have. Can I ask you, just because, it, again, it's come out as a bit of a theme with a couple of other guests, mm. uh, public speaking, you know, that part of getting out there, standing on the podium in a sense, yeah. you know, to get, to get your messages across, have to, you have to be an effective communicator. It doesn't come easily to a lot of people. Do you want to say a little bit more about how you you gained that confidence? Was it a question of just getting out there, doing it, and practice makes perfect? Or was there some other – how did you psych yourself up, in effect, to become this more confident communicator that you clearly are now um i'm still perfecting it <laughs> i'll never get to the perfection stage but i think i know myself if i listen to somebody else and you know they give a damn about what they're talking about it just comes out naturally so i yeah when i'm very passionate obviously it just flows out of me and because i'm i'm trying to make a difference so i think if i'm quiet and don't say a thing nothing's going to happen um so, yeah, the confidence comes with the doing, the practice. Um, the more and more you do it, the more confident. Like I used to go to meetings and they'd ask a question, I'd never put my hand up. But now I'm like, well, oh, you know, you can't stop me because <laughs> I think many people are silenced and they've got so many good things as heaps of people and try to encourage that out of them. And it's always a learning thing. Like I, I do talk to people, but I'm also there to listen and learn from them as well, which is a big thing. So, yeah, definitely practice. <laughs> that two-way process because again that's come out that more that collaborative you know i'm listening as well as you know actually just speaking as well i'm, I'm taking it in i'm taking your view in as well yeah. absolutely I'm, I, I love learning i said my, i was saying to my kids i said i'm 43 year old and i'm still learning i love learning every day <laughs> from farmers and you know townspeople and and the experts i work with lots of obviously very talented people with lots of knowledge and expertise so now it's a Always a learning journey. So, you know, again, I just think that's a fantastic model. Your voice, your voice is hugely important as well. And even amongst these, this stellar, stellar group of other experts, you know, you feel you've got to that point now of feeling that, you know, you can actually put forward your views as well. So you, you're a good model for that. And I've heard this from other guests, you know, it, it comes over time, but, uh, that, that idea of voice, particularly women's voice, which is what this podcast series is all about. It's great to hear that you, you know, you found that and you're, you're using it effectively. Yeah. And I think too, we, um, because I haven't got any degrees or paperwork behind me, that sort of sometimes puts me in better state, I suppose. It sounds funny, but um, because people don't want to be talked at or told what to do. Whereas when I say, well, I'm not coming from a scientific background, not saying that that's, a, but people go, oh, well, actually, you are actually here to help me. And yeah, it's, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> um, 
you come you what's that new term that people use relatable you this might be the wrong way because i'm an old person right you know you're trying to get new vocabulary but yeah. relatable perhaps you're more relatable to them because you're yeah you know. yeah i'm not i've not come straight from uni and sort of because mm, yeah, mm. we are farmers ourselves and off the land mm. Yeah, relatable. That's probably the best way to say it. <laughs> you're, you're you're one of them. You're or you're close. You're more one of them than some intellectual pointy head from you know from the academic towers. Yeah. And we know uh, they're the they're the one they're the researchers. And there's a lot of good ones that I work with in that scope too. So mm. Not to <laughs> downgrade their work because they we need them as well. But um, yeah. So, look, uh, the other part of that response, uh, Mill Merrin, uh, it's a small – in a previous episode, we've talked about the Darling Downs. Several several guests have worked on the Darling Downs, very important agricultural area, very important landscape area. Do you want to just give a flavour of Mill Merrin and, and the region around it? So for people who will, you know, perhaps are from outside Queensland listening to this or whatever, um, yep. give, us, give us some pen picture of Mill Merrin. So, yeah, Mill Merrin, like you said, it's a town of about 3,000. We've got a mix of prime agricultural land, broad scale cropping, grazing. We've got a family, which is brilliant. We've got a family owned um, agricultural business with the chooks and the cropping. And so they've, they're organic and they're actually close friends of mine. So they're just doing great things on the ground. Um, we have got a lot of smaller blocks, bush blocks um, from 20 acres through to 250 acres. And Yes, we've got a really big mix of dynamics there. Um, it's a great little town, but I, I work so across the Mulmere and Shire, but also work across Pittsworth now and as far west as the other side of Dolby. So it's very diverse, very, very diverse area. <laughs> um, so it is has come, does come with its challenges, but it's also very reward, rewarding because you get to work with so many different people on opposite ends of the scale from the little tiny bush box that are trying to look after it for the birds and the bees and then you've got your the big farmers trying to do well by their land and feed us all. <laughs> Very diverse. Great. Thank, thank you for that. That's That sort of just helps draw that picture. Uh, you know, just moving on now through the discussion, you know, often people get a lot of um, positive motivation by just getting some feedback, whether that's official feedback from their employers or their, their their job boss or their manager, but also just what they actually conclude themselves about what they're doing. You know, in the sense of, hey, I'm 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 on board here. I'm doing good work. I'm hitting the targets. I'm achieving stuff. Was there a moment in your case, particularly when you first realised what impact your work was having in protecting or restoring the environment? Um, there's a few little moments. Um. I still remember years ago I'd just done a school session, so I do a lot of school stuff with waste and recycling and veggie gardens and just anything environmental really. Um, I remember a parent saying to me, <laughs> we saw her one night out at dinner and she said, oh, my gosh, my child has not stopped talking about what you taught, about, taught, taught her the other day and that's sort of come out a few times with different topics, which that to me, like, woohoo, <laughs> that's great. I've had a win there. And I remember a friend asking me years ago, she said, do you think you're having a win or do you think you're getting anywhere? Um, and I said, well, if one person learns to recycle or plant trees or whatever, whatever, there's so many different things, um, and then that person encourages someone else and then we know the ripple effect. So that 
that to me is a win, I think. So there's lots of little wins we have which add up to a big lot, I think. But, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing was, and another another one was um, a certain friend, husband who used to throw rubbish out the window. She told me. I didn't know that. And, um, yeah, and she came to me one day after I'd spoken to him and she was very excited that he no longer did that anymore. So <laughs> as much as that was a, a very, obviously very bad bad um, thing for him to do, but the fact that he stopped, I think, oh, I don't know what I said, but anyway, <laughs> that was um, all those little wins, like all those little things. Like I think we don't have to plant 10,000 trees to be classed as successful. I think, you know, it could be one tree. You know, we say one tree is better than no tree. So one child doing something different or caring is that that's to me is a win. And then those friends talk to each other and, yeah, so there's a lot of those little little things, I think. And I've been lucky enough. Too um, over the years, I've been quite successful with grants, so that's sort of why we're sort of our group is still lucky enough to have a coordinator. So a lot of other um, Lanka groups, unfortunately, have fell by the wayside due to funding and whatnot. But I have been lucky enough to sort of hold on, and we've got quite a um, few good little projects on the ground at the moment going forward. So yeah, there's all those little tiny wins. Plus, there's the Obviously, the bigger ones, but they all they all equate to the big stuff. So, I think it all counts. <laughs> it certainly does. That's fantastic list. You know, I, that's incredible. The, the direct influence, particularly of people, um, you know, changing their behaviour, that doesn't come easily. And the fact that you know, and also just sustaining the work through that whole grant process, which often is a, a bit of a sort of um, hit and miss type of situation, but you've been so successful in that. Um, so great. So which brings us on to the next question, really, which links very closely to it. That you, I, I can see that there will be a lot of stuff that you'd be proud of in, in terms of your achievements. But just asking you specifically, are there any specific environmental achievements, environmental protection achievements you're particularly satisfied with or proud of and why? Um. There's quite a few, but one of my biggest ones is the cultural burning. Um, as we know, fire was taken out of the landscape a long, long time ago, thinking that it was going to have a good environmental effect, which, in fact, it's the opposite, as we saw in the 2019 fires. So I've been passionate way before even Landcare about working with Indigenous people and like they had it right. They had it right for a long time. <laughs> so why did we go away from it? So I was very passionate about it even before I was in this role, but now being in this role, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with these people. And um, so that's probably been one of the biggest wins, even on those smaller blocks, the big bush blocks, just teaching people and being on ground with them. I do I do a lot of the first burns with people just to, to give them that confidence. Um, so that to me, just to try and change that mindset and show people that it's actually bettering the land using the right sort of fire because it's another thing, it's another big fear of, um, that's instilled in a lot of people, which is rightly so. But um, that to me is probably one of my biggest passions and one of the biggest wins, I suppose. Um, people saying, oh, well, where else I can do that on my own now? My, my, whole, well, my whole plan is to help people in the initial stages and give them the confidence and show them how to do things right and then I can move off knowing that they're going to continue. So I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. And a lot of people who aren't off the land have moved from the cities to escape the urbanisation. Um, so they want to protect their bush. They want to protect their land. And so that to me has been a big win. 
as well as lots of other things <laughs> with the schools and um, got a good relationship with the schools, um, which is really good. There's, just, there's too many good things <laughs> that, um, that people are doing to sort of talk about all of them. Well, I think we've got a bit of time here. I, I, again, just picking out a few points from that list. The It's very interesting to hear that um, <clears throat> fantastic connection you, you made there, the cultural burning uh, concept, mm-hmm. Indigenous First Nations approaches to landscape management that goes back, you know, millennia, tens of thousands of years. It's great in more general terms to see that knowledge base now being more respected, being brought into um, Western for want of a better term, Western landscape management, um, agricultural systems uh, processes in the recognition that these people uh, were on the land for a long, long time and they might might know some very good stuff about how to uh, manage it. The yeah, yeah, go on, sorry. No, absolutely, I agree. And um, I know there's people now say, well, it can't apply as it did, you know, a thousand years ago because they weren't farming and Victor Stephenson, um, a lot of people would have heard of Victor Stephenson. He's been burning country for 30 years, was uh, lucky enough to learn from his elders. And he says, well, we were farming too back then, but it was ruse. So it's all about management of grasses. And it doesn't matter what's eating those grasses, but it's just a management management of that grass and those, you know, weed incursions, whatever else. Obviously, there was no weed incursions back then, but um, you do the right, carry out the right fire, all that flow and effect is, you know, higher production, less weed incursion, better soil health. It's just so it does it does apply just as much as it did back then. Maybe obviously our landscapes have changed a lot. We've got a lot of cropping and even with the cropping project I've just finished with CSIRO, um, I wanted to burn roadsides to encourage the native grasses to outcompete the weeds that are big um having big impacts on the, the croppers, costing them millions a year. Um so I think it's got its place in most situations, really. Yeah, and it's great to see that there's a growing literature now on it. I'm just uh, off the top of my head, you know, thinking of people like Bruce Pascoe's work. I, we'll put some we'll put some links into the show notes uh, oh, of the episode for those who might want to take that up. Uh, the indigenous worldview approach to, or the indigenous cultural approach to landscape management. But I just want to uh-huh. ask you also because it's uh, such I think such a particularly important area as well of your work. You know, educating the next generations coming up, and again, a lot uh-huh. of uh, research on to improve. Perhaps it might seem obvious, but nonetheless, it's good to have the research that the earlier that you can get young kids involved with ideas about nature and out in nature, again, coming back to that earlier, those earlier comments, the more likely it is that they're going to develop respectful, caring and supportive uh, behaviours later in life. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about what you might, what you do with those kids um, on the ground? Just give us a flavour of that, because I think it's such a such a vital task to educate the next generation. Yeah, I think it's um, one of the big things we do in the schools is recycling. And um, I go as far back as, well, why are we recycling? Like, obviously, recycling is good, but we want to do things above that. We want to stop using in the first place. If we have to use, we'll reduce that. I'll reuse that. Um, But I always go back into, because people don't know what they don't know. So I use examples of, well, Everything comes from the land and kids can't understand. <laughs> they are actually a bit surprised. Actually, some teachers are quite surprised when I say, well, absolutely everything on this planet comes from the ground originally um, and it's manipulated to whatever form it is needed. Um, so when kids, that really hits home, I think, with the kids because I I, I try to, I'm, I'm, I'm honest with them and it might be a bit scary, um, the honesty, but 
there's always a solution. That's the same. Things can be scary, but there is a solution. So um, when we talk about recycling, obviously we talk about plastic coming from oil and you'd be surprised. How many people don't know that, which is quite scary. Um, but obviously talk about how we can obviously stop try to stop using plastic better. So I think giving that whole picture, like talking about kids, telling them, you know, just to put it in the yellow bin, that's that's all well and good, but but why? You know, why? <laughs> um, I think that gets more buy-in because they actually understand. Like I, I know, I want to know why I'm doing things too. So if you've got that whole whole loop of understanding, well, it sort of breeds a bit more enthusiasm, I suppose, passion, long-term passion. Um, yeah, and getting kids out, I just think kids aren't made to sit at a desk for six hours a day. Um, they need to be out being physical, and if we can be physical out in nature, well, it's a win-win. Um, they're still learning. Like I've said to some of my teacher friends, well, the little fellas, let's get out and count leaves. It's still maths, <laughs> but but they're outside. They're in the fresh air. They're being physical, plus they're still learning, and there's so much learning to be done in nature, as we know. Um, so. I do take a lot of the kids out. I've just started this year on excursions. So I'm actually taking a year six class out tomorrow um, as part of their science lesson. So they talk about habitat suitability and um, all that sort of stuff. I said, well, it's all well and good to learn it in the classroom, but let's get them out and look at some habitat. So it really cements that idea in their head, hopefully. So valuable what you're doing there. I mean, the whole history, but we haven't got time to do it now, but environmental education schools. I mean, at one time there was a high point, you know, back in the sort of, well, it kicked off back in the 70s, but to be honest, it, it seems to have largely fallen away. What that's entirely about, I'm not sure, over full curricula, you know, too too yeah. much going on, but the fact that you're actually bringing that back in to okay. local schools. And you're touching upon so many points there recycling linked to the idea of the circular economy but you know, one way of just briefly summarizing what you're doing you're, you're teaching these kids it seems to me this is my interpretation what you said about holism about that that holy grail principle of everything being connected to everything else once you understand that uh, and start to embed that in everything that that we do we, we, we would all be a lot better off um you know the, the sort of oil is connected yeah. to the plastics which is connected to the pollution which is you know and so it goes on so it's fantastic to hear that you're bringing that principle in and anchoring that by taking them out into the natural world as well. So um, congratulations on that work, Beck. Fantastic. So, Beck, as we now move through the story of your important environmental support work across the Darling Downs region, uh, it can't all have been plain sailing, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, if it, if it could be. But the people inevitably come up against uh, more or less yep. – they come up against some sort of obstacles to overcome along the way. So in your case, what were some of the challenges you faced in your past environmental support career journey and how did you overcome them? So as a an employed land care coordinator, one of the biggest challenges, obviously, as every land care group faces is um, there's no ongoing financial support from anywhere. Um, so we're very sporadic with our funding. Um, so I'm just lucky – that's the biggest challenge is knowing whether I've got a job or not <laughs> each year. Um, but obviously we've overcome that so far and we're looking pretty good for the future at the moment, which is great. Um, another thing, I think with that with that challenge though comes opportunity. So thinking about outside the box, not, not just waiting for the government grants to come up, but forming partnerships with different industry groups and different and saying, well, how can we collaborate on this and, you know, because I'm a doer, I want to I still, still see stuff happening on ground, whether we've got funding for it or not. 
And there are little ways of doing that on a smaller scale. So I think that's um, a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. But another thing, obviously, especially with the media, mainstream media, there's a lot of negativity to do with well, everything, but obviously environmental. And um, I run, I do run farm tours every year with with city people that come up for our festivals, and um, they've obviously seen agriculture and environmental issues on TV. But I like to show them there's so much more positive stuff happening than what we know about. So. Um, and I choose to focus on that positive stuff because I just think negativity creates negativity, so therefore positivity just compounds. So I choose to, even though there's all those challenges, we can focus on the negative if we want to, which obviously we are focusing on some obviously degradation all that sort of stuff, And but there's no point banging on about whose fault it is. We Let's just move on and get things, make them better. So. Yeah, that's how I operate. I choose to focus on what I can do and not what I can't do, I suppose. Very positive. I mean, you know, again, just encapsulating your thing, you're a positive person. I mean, I think you'd have to be, wouldn't you, in terms of enthusing other people. But yeah. there's several things there, you know, diligence, perseverance, you know, you know, maintaining a, a, a financial flow. But that solution-focused approach, which you also touched upon before, um, you know, positivity matched with solutions. I mean, you need optimism, yeah, but you also need practical ways forward, a vision for where we're going, the ability yep. to um, see what needs to happen on the ground, the objectives, the goals, all that sort of stuff. It sounds like you're very, you know, practical in regards to that. So I, and I sorry, don't say on. no. To, on. Yeah. Oh, any comes my way, I don't say no. So I think um, we don't know until we've had a go. So you know, I'm, I'm, I love networking. Obviously, that's how things happen because you meet people that are doing other good stuff. And, um, yeah, so I don't much to my <laughs> committees. Um, they might get a bit sick of me sometimes. <laughs> no, no, um, I just don't say no because I think, well, with opportunities, um, you never know. You have a go. And if it's not successful in the area, well, you move on and don't do it again. But I just think say yes to most opportunities that come along and you never know where that might lead. You know, you're talking about lead, uh, leadership. Um, you know, this is again, you, you're, as you're talking here, fantastic example of forward thinking, positive, can do leadership mentality. My God, if we had more of that, you know, in the organs of government uh, at all various levels, because what often appears to be the case is we have this sort of overly timid, cautious, um, business as usual mentality, which people sort of all too easily seem to fall back in into. You know, what we need, it seems to be, as you're talking about, the things that you do, we need energy, we need vision, we need forward thinking, and we need someone to come along and actually say, hey, this can be, we can try this, we can we can give this a go, we can, as opposed to, oh, no, it's in the too hard basket, it's, you know, no, 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 let's, let's pass that over. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think we've got the solutions. The solutions for any issue is right in front of us. It's just a matter about doing it. <laughs> you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to make things harder than what they are because I think all the solutions are there. It's just a matter of enacting them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if only government was that way inclined, it would be great. <laughs> and I think a lot of government agencies, they probably they go in with the passion but, They've obviously got guidelines and whatnot to stick to, but I just think the solutions are there. We know we know what to do. We know how to make things better and keep things on track. But unfortunately, yeah. So that's what I like to be. I like to be on ground. I like to be doing because I think well, the the change makers are the 
the people on the land. So I like working directly with them and that, that's how I roll. It's fantastic to hear all that, you know, positivity, the value of being positive and optimistic in the work. Do you want, do you want to say a bit more about the value of that as an approach, as opposed to doom and gloom, let's wave a big stick over people's heads sort of thing? Yeah, so um, um, as human nature, I think we – I get excited when other people are excited and see, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? And it sort of forms a bit more interest um, as far as the big stick – it is needed sometimes, obviously, but um, my big thing is let's demonstrate what we know works in our local area so the neighbour can look over the fence going, wowzers, what's going on there? And um, lead by example is my big thing, I suppose, um, rather than I have, I do have this conversation with certain people who do get annoyed at their neighbour who isn't, you know, maybe practising good fire management or or their weeds or whatever. And I said, well, stop concentrating on what you can't control. And worry about what you can control. You can control your place, and like the fire, the fire stuff's a perfect example. Um, a good fire, a, a wildfire, will not touch country health, uh, healthy country. Sorry. So if you prepare your land and get it balanced, the soil's right, the grass is right, the tree, the way it should be through, whether it's manual labour or or burning or grazing management, whatever that is, and we've seen it in the last few big fires out home. Um, those wildfires will literally go around those properties. It'll burn the neighbour, it'll burn the front, it'll burn the back, it will not go onto their property. So I just think concentrate on what you can control and not what you can't control. Um, otherwise you would just be banging your head against the walls. <laughs> we all would. So, and I just, yeah, and I think I, I, I get enthusiastic when other people around me are enthusiastic, so I, I hope to be that person for others. So, but, yeah, just having those local demonstrations, because like I said, we know, we know, how to fix things. We know what to do. We know what practices are better for the land. And there's a lot of people doing that. And um, I think if we can put those sorts of people up on pedestals and showcase what they're doing, others might go, well, wowzers, I can actually do that. I've got the same sort of them in the same region. Um, where you'll still always have your sceptics saying, well, that'll never work on my place because A, B, C, D. And that's fine. That's, that's fine. But um, let's just, yeah, lead by example is my big thing. With positivity, going like there's always going to be negatives. There's always downfalls, no matter what we do. But um, as long as the the positives outweigh the negatives, I think well, you're winning. In my book, <laughs> you're wrapping some fantastic principles up there: being positive and optimistic, being solution focused, being an enthusiastic role model as you deal with some of the challenges of influencing people, of staying on track keeping funding coming through the door. You clearly have used this working philosophy to great effect to overcome the challenges you've faced. And I know that you greatly enjoy your land care work. It's it's meaningful work for you, which gives you a great sense of fulfillment. And, and given that work in general is such an important component of all of our lives, of many of our lives, I wanted to ask you to unpack that idea of work satisfaction and fulfillment a little more. The question being, in your particular case, how do you feel that your past and present work has influenced your well-being, motivation and determination to keep doing what you do? Um, greatly, <laughs> greatly influenced. Um, so before I was in the coordinator role, the paid coordinator role, I was, these passions haven't changed. Like I've, I've always had these passions and obviously before I was in a, the role that I'm in now, I was just that crazy greeny <laughs> at the parties I would be banging on about, we should be doing this, we should be doing that. And so I'm just super, super fortunate to be able to be in a position, I suppose, of influence and 
like I said, I, I influence, but I'm influenced by a lot of people too. So it's a two way street. And um, so yeah, I love, I love my job. It's not well. It's not work to me because I'm, I'm doing, what I love, and hopefully encouraging others to do similar sorts of things. So it's not work to me, and that's what I say. If you, you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life, do you? <laughs> Obviously, there are, you know, ups and downs, and no one likes paperwork, and there's always that sort of stuff. But the, again, the positives far outweigh the negatives. So yeah, I think it's, and I, as far as my well-being, well, obviously I. I'm happy. I'm happy, happy doing what I I love, and um, that obviously definitely has big impacts on well being. Anyone that's happy in their life, well, it's, it's yeah, plays a big part in their physical and their mental well being. So yeah, I'm very lucky, very very lucky. And we've touched upon this in a previous episode. What we're talking about here at the bigger picture level, to some extent, is the quality of work. Uh, you, people, many people are are obliged to work in jobs that are the opposite of what you said. Uh, they need to make a crust. You know, many surveys ac- across the country and, and internationally have shown that a lot of people don't actually do work that vastly um, gives them satisfaction or fulfillment. So I think it's very valuable, again, uh, you as a role model in that type of work where you are doing stuff that you love. So therefore, it's a vo- more of a vocation, a calling. And I suppose just to round this off by saying that given the serious problems of national global environmental decline, you know, perhaps one of the most important job sectors that anyone could be involved in is the environmental protection and support sector. Yeah. So the fact that you're in there and it just happens to be a very goodness of fit, a good fit for you. Yeah. But hopefully in, in future society, we're going to have a lot more people in a lot more satisfying, fulfilling work roles, doing valuable work that actually helps extend uh, the environmental quality of the global situation. So, yeah. And as far as environmental, um, I've always said, like everyone, everyone, if farmers talk about making a crust, like people, farmers are on ground to make a crust. They're there to, we all are, like I'm a farm, we're farmers ourselves. And But production, obviously production is what brings the crust in, but production and environment aren't separate. So I love proving that a healthy environment, so you don't have to be a greenie, um, you know, hugging trees out in the scrub there, um, but you have a healthy environment, your production is through the roof. So, yeah, just trying to break down those barriers of, well, we can't look after the birds and the bees because we're trying to make money. Well, well, guess what? You're actually going to make a hell of a lot more money <laughs> by looking after the birds and the bees. So it's just trying to break down because obviously for years, you know, we've been flogged different chemicals and different te- techniques and different tactics and, and that some of them are still relevant, don't get me wrong, but um, I think it's – yeah, it's all about working with nature and obviously we look after her and she looks after us back. So, yeah, there's lots more money she made and a lot more. I've got one of my local farmers and I've put him up on a pedestal. We've done a lot of work on his place and he's we've done a little interview with him and he his, his own words are, he said, I'm just happier. He said, I'm just happier. He said, I'm not on a tractor all the time. I'm not spraying. I'm not fertilising. I'm not ploughing the hell out of my country he said i'm just happier he said he said i've got more time for a beer and he said that's what life's about he said it's about enjoying your land enjoying your work on the land and being happy and so i just i love that like he can talk about you know what's happening with the soils and he's just made a few minor little changes as far as putting multi-species in instead of um straight crops like a simple simple change but just had a huge impact on his 
well, his well-being, his his life. So he said, like, I'm, I'm still successful. I'm still making money. But he said, I've got so much more time on my hands to just enjoy. And, yeah, he loves it. <laughs> so, so simple, yet such a rewarding outcome. So simple, but seemingly so hard to grasp for, uh, for in large sections of the remaining community. But on the positive side, you know, again, you're touching on this holistic principle of that very close interconnection between the social, the economic, and the environmental. If only we could see that the obvious um, factors in front of our face. And and fantastic examples like that guy who's doing the whole. Whether he, whether he calls it holistic management, I don't know. But in a previous episode, we've been hearing about holistic management, regenerative agriculture. But the real payoff being not only multiple payoffs, not only in terms of better quality of the natural world that supports better quality crops, for instance, that sort of thing, but the mental health benefits, um, the actual benefits to the local community, a better quality of life coming out of the fact that this, this these people are not – going out there having to flog themselves and the land perhaps as much as as before because they're looking at that close integration so i think fantastic that you you're pointing to that yeah and that's, that's the whole lead by example thing um which i alluded to before so i've got some major players in my area and they're doing just wonderful things and yeah so i think well let's work with them and let's put them up on a pedestal and the other guys can look going well hold on <laughs> so yeah, so so basically, uh, it's great to hear that um, case studies, you know, examples on farm demonstrations, extension, all that sort of stuff, uh, forms of education. Yeah. But you're using, you're tapping into the examples of pioneers that are actually making using these new approaches. Well, are they new approaches? I mean, in some respects, you might say they're they're retooled old approaches. But look, whatever they, however you might define them, using these approaches of holistic integrated approaches to managing the land feeling much better as a result and still making a buck out of it what's not to like exactly and like back to that they're not new principles like i had a conversation with someone a few months ago and he said he hates the term regenerative agriculture he said it's not new he said it's just looking after your land and the land <laughs> and it's it's so true he said um yeah he said people have been doing it for centuries obviously but then there's the exception to the rules, obviously. But um, he said it's not a new concept. I said, absolutely. It's just the buzzword at the moment, regenerative. And obviously we used to have sustainable, but we don't want sustainable. We want things regenerating at the moment. So um, it's very true. Like he said, it's not a new concept. I said, absolutely. We've just gone away from, obviously, nature wants diversity. We've gone away from diversity in a lot of farming situations, as we all know. So it's just about getting back to what mimicking nature and It'll just look after itself. <laughs> we know that. Yeah. So, so fantastic to hear all of that interesting, you know, new approach to or newer approach to working with the land. And it's it's getting in there. And I've heard this from other guests as well. It's diffusing into um, the farming community and landscape management and stuff like that. So great. So it looks, it sounds back as if you've already got a very full and exciting calendar of work uh, and engagement with community, all that. But nonetheless, to ask you, uh, as we come up towards the end of this uh, interview, are you working on any current exciting projects? I, or, or it might be more, which exciting current projects are you working on? What what sort of comes to top of top of mind to you? Yeah, so the burn, the, the cultural burning is obviously a huge passion of mine. So that's just ongoing. That's just going to be ongoing. So that's super exciting. But I've no, it hasn't actually been announced um, officially yet to the public. But I don't know when this gets aired. Um, I did get a future drought fund 
application that was successful, which is super exciting. And it's all about, so it's not about um, trials. It's not about, it's about demonstration. It's, so it's exactly what we're talking about now saying, well, let's demonstrate and showcase these actions and these techniques in our local area. So that's the two-year project. So that's very, very exciting. It's very, very new. I only found out last week. Um, so that's, yeah, that gives me the scope now and the financial backing <laughs> to actually do this stuff on ground in our local area to hopefully um, increase more uptake of these practices. So it'll be just simple little things like Joe Blow has a, a fallow normally with no plants and also give me a small area of that to actually prove that diversity of plants, instead of having fallow, your next yield, that's just one example, your next yield will actually be increased, just trying to break down that that whole moisture retention thing. So, yeah, it's very exciting. So a few big things happening there with the natural sequence farming is another technique we we love using. Obviously, the landscape's drying very, very quickly. Um, at the moment, we're very lucky. It's very good at the moment, but we know that it dries out just as quick as it gets wet. So it's all about trying to maintain that moisture and keep water on country now rather than seeing it go down the river systems. So a few, yeah, so anything drought-proofing um, we'll be demonstrating in the local area, which will be super exciting over the next two years. So that's going to be one of my, my major projects. I think, again, just to hear that, um, fantastic, those ideas, whether they're termed, and I, I know we've talked about the terminology there, which terms are applied, but whether it's regenerative agriculture, holistic management, but mimicking or at least attempting to approach once more the natural cycles, uh, use the natural cycles of uh, the environment as opposed to attempt to dominate them and control them in the realisation this is going to produce better outcomes economically, socially and environmentally. It's fantastic to hear that you're getting um, traction, you're getting funding for that work. So, yep. Beck, just uh, as we now come to the end in the last couple of questions of this fantastic interview, uh, given that people tend to remember the last thing they heard, the first thing they heard over a long spiel, um, could you give us a, a short summary or a brief comment or anything you want to draw from the uh, the, uh, the actual conversation points you've made today that summarises the the actual message you want the audience to take home? Um, have a go. <laughs> that's that's my my motto is have a go. Um, give a damn. <laughs> um, if you're passionate about it, just do it. Just 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 have a go. Um, there's, there's always ways to achieve things, I think, no matter what the situation. So if you, just have a go. <laughs> That's short and simple, I think. So and then, yeah, don't let the negativity drag you down in any situation because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's there to feed you in a bad way. So we don't want that. So just concentrate on the positives and move forward and have a go. <laughs> And, you know, accentuate the positive and get on with it. Uh, you know, fantastic advice for anyone. But just this very last question, which really builds on what you've just said, do you have any advice, especially for women who might want to step up into the natural system, restoration, regeneration, wildlife, conservation roles, land care roles, the sort of thing that you've been doing for quite a long time now, 10 years or so, listeners um, tapping into this discussion, have you got any advice specifically for women? I mean, we hope there's a generic male and female audience, but um, women specifically, any any advice, parting advice? Um, I've just said, like, celebrate all the small achievements. That's probably not fitting for men or women. It's for both across the board. But just as I said, celebrate 
all else, all everything you achieve. All those little ones add up to a great result. And again, don't let negativity drag you down. There's always more good than there are bad. And just follow your passion. What a rousing, you know, call to arms and motivational sort of principle to end this fantastic interview on. Uh, Beck, I'm sure that you've given our audience out there in podcast land some great ideas and some, well, some real motivational insights as well to keep going because i think a lot of people are working you know very passionately for environmental protection aims but it is good to have some techniques also to keep up the the juice uh, to keep up the energy level sometimes when stuff doesn't seem to be uh, hitting the tracks quite as fast as you'd like it so some great motivational stuff but thanks once again for giving us all those tips and just now on behalf of my podcast support organization householders options to protect the environment i'd like to thank you so warmly for your conversation today thank you no, um, i think you are doing a great job like i said before and um everyone listening well it's up to all of us to have a go <laughs> thanks beck really appreciate it thank you very much you've been listening to a podcast episode in the series queensland women inspiring stories from environmental champions the series was produced for Householders Options to Protect the Environment Incorporated as part of the Queensland Women's Week 2023 event and it aligns with the objectives of the Queensland Women's Strategy 2022-2027. Hope thanks the Queensland Department of Justice and Attorney General's Office for Women and Violence Prevention for the generous funding support which made this podcast project possible. Please consult the episode text notes for possible follow-up material on topics discussed and any relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you've heard. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider promoting it across your networks and giving it a positive rating in your preferred podcast app. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.